The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today is well known as author of A Journey Through 10,000 Veils, charting her experiences in traveling the world for many years in search of Sufism and God's ultimate truth. In joining us today, Mariam Kabir Fay talks to the challenges and joys of encounters with the people and places in her extraordinary life's journey. My guest today is an established author of the book Journey Through 10,000 Veils. In her journey over the last four decades, she's traveled across continents seeking enlightenment, which she ultimately found on the Sufi path. Describing her profound meetings with extraordinary people in the most amazing places on earth, she has charted through her memoirs an extraordinary road, through which the beauty of peace in a delicate evolving tapestry has brought her to the joys of God's love. Sheikha Maryam Kabir, welcome today. Thank you so much. Maryam, I have had the great pleasure of reading your, your book, and what an amazing journey this is, obviously, that you have taken over uh, two or three decades of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to return, if I may, to your childhood, uh, starting off this program, um, and realizing that you originally come from the Jewish faith, could you uh, start off, please, by uh, charting the early years, your childhood years? Mm-hmm. I'm going to begin in the name of God, the most merciful and the most compassionate. Bismillah, Rahman Rahim. And say that I am honored and blessed to share this time with you and with everyone who listens and that this is a message of the heart to the heart and the soul to the soul. And my story is a vision, a realization of a, of a deep plan that was ordained for me and each and every one of us created by one who loves his creation so profoundly is guided whether we understand it or not, and whether we make this journey willingly or unwillingly. And in my case, uh, I was born in a liberal Jewish family in Hollywood, and I, it was an atmosphere of, of benign love for humanity that I grew up in. Uh, there was a sense of uh, non-discriminatory acceptance of human life, and I remember um, that message kind of vibrating through the realm. However, my family was not religious at all, and not exactly spiritual, Um, and this spirituality that guided my life did not come from the outside, but was really powerfully resonating within me from the time of my babyhood and childhood early childhood, and so, and I believe that this is more or less 
universally applicable to to many children uh, that children are pure and that they have capacity to to respond to the divine to hear God speaking to them, moving them, and I did. Um, but the kind of messages I was receiving internally, I just couldn't find on the outside. There was nobody talking about it, and so the message just continued to grow internally. Um, and when I was 12 years old, I was acting in a theater company, and uh, the assistant director of the company was kind of tuned in. He was a spiritual person and aware of this mystery kind of taking place inside of me. It was not that we really talked about it, but he seemed to know about it. And I would say he was more or less my first mirror on the journey. And he made a scroll um, and gave it to me. He made a scroll for me. It had an ancient man with a staff and a lantern. And inscribed at the bottom of that scroll were the words, Seek, and the truth shall make you free. Now, was that uh, supported in any way by your parents, or, or did your parents allow you to chart your your own journey in this spirituality? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the interesting point is you're hearing the message internally, and then you see a sign manifested in front of you of the deepest secret nature of your own being. And before that time, I never heard a word about it. So it wasn't something that was discussed in my home. And I actually, or in school, it was something that was happening inside, and then suddenly I understood what it was. Now, that message that came to me, I actually didn't tell them. <laughs> I don't think that I, that I really showed it to anyone at the time. But I knew I was now galvanized in the direction of seeking the liberating truth, seeking divine knowledge, and that that was a confirmation of what I had already been experiencing. Now, at this stage, you obviously were still ensconced in the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in your book, you, you talk about the, uh, the circles in, in which you uh, find yourself uh, in that faith, in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, at that stage, are you still assuming that it is the Jewish faith that is is pulling you down that road, or are you already aware that possibly there are other religions, other faiths mm-hmm. that uh, could possibly inspire you more? Well, first of all, my family was not religious, so I didn't identify myself as a Jew religiously. Um, we were we we existed in a community, a very kind of warm and loving community. Um, I think I mentioned that I, I experienced it most in camps that I used to go to, and um, in those camps we used to meet in groves of trees, and um, we would stand in a circle and sing songs that were um, invoking goodness and brotherhood and things like this and that's what that was the positive experience i had of the jewish community uh but there was no kind of clear religious training that i myself went through and when this experience occurred it did relate to the to the sense of love and 
warmth and fellowship that I experienced in camp, but it was much deeper. And it was not in a context of anything that I had known before or heard before. So it wasn't that I didn't identify it as connected to a specific religion. Now, did your parents at this stage recognize where you were heading, recognized uh, where your mind was in, in all of these activities? I don't really think so. I have met certain people later in life who told me that they knew me as a child and they knew something very unusual was taking place. And the words that I mentioned in the book, which you re- responded to, was something that both of my parents transmitted to me. And my mother specifically said to me, I have found the truth for myself. You must find what is true for you. This statement, how did this really make me feel? In fact, it was an, a very liberating message. And then it kind of, I never forgot it because, in fact, from that moment that she said it and I grasped what it meant, it doesn't mean she grasped what she said in the way I did, but I understood that all the things that she believed in and that she was doing, you know, what her value system, her way of thinking, was in some way different than mine. She but, was giving me the permission to follow my that that beat of my inner drummer what was there anything selfish in that from her point of view in so much that she didn't want to uh, explore or become involved in what you were doing that she was more self-ensconced in in her own life in her own relationship i didn't hear it in that way when the words were spoken i i heard it from a deeper place and it was speaking directly to my soul and saying, progress, go and make this journey, and you will be unimpeded by the fact that she really doesn't understand what you're doing or what you're thinking. And I didn't take it negatively, though there are aspects of our life together that were uh, challenging to me because I felt for most of our life until I spent an extraordinary period with her in her, on her deathbed, um, that she didn't understand what was moving me or who I really was. So uh, until the time of her passing, did she still recognize that she was of the Jewish faith? I don't Uh, think so. So she didn't really want to discuss uh, where you had traveled to and what your choices were. It it was just something that, that she was not that interested in. Yes, I think that she was. She had a different way of thinking, a different frame of reference, and um, in she observed what was happening to me, kind of from the side, you know, without even looking directly upon it. Now, when I actually left home and I went to college, I went to Berkeley, and then I made the journey around the world many times. No one seemed to be worried at all about me. They, they understood, even though they couldn't really totally grasp what was taking place, they understood that somehow I was being guided and protected. And no one uh, tried to stop it and no one criticized it or, or really um, said, no, you can't do this. And when I met one by one my spiritual teachers, my sheikhs, um, my parents always came and spent time with them. You know, and the, the sheikhs have always loved my family. And there's also a second 
part of the family, which is my father and stepmother, and we should talk about that also because it was a, it was a, also a different type of atmosphere than in my mother's home. I'd like to uh, move on, if I may, to uh, this man that you, you refer to as Papa, um, your mother's father. He was clearly very important to you, and in, in digesting that period, it, it almost comes over that he replaced in some way the almost disinterest that your mother had, whether it was conscious on her mm-hmm. part or not. He was clearly very, very important to you. Mm-hmm. How did that relationship develop? And, and tell me, more importantly, I was so moved uh, at that profound moment uh, when uh, Abe... Mm-hmm. Um, at his last breath, uttered, uh, uttered that that wonderful line in your book, mm-hmm. um, and then he passed away, and that was his last breath. Um, he clearly an amazing man. What was it that that he contributed to your life? There are two people now. One of them is Papa, and the other was Abe. Papa was my mother's father, and Abe Weiselman was my stepmother Sophie's father. So these are two different people, and they played a part in my life at different periods. And and I should, and sorry to interrupt, but I should just clarify for our listeners that the uh, the, the line uh, that, that he uttered at his death was, I want to be a smile on the face of everyone on earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, how absolutely, uh, what an amazingly profound statement to, to make at that stage. Mm. Were, were you actually present when that occurred? No. No, and what I would like to do uh, is read the poem that he that he wrote. A little bit more of it, if that's okay. Absolutely. Let me begin then. This is what Abe Weiselman said in the course of his amazing journey that he made around the the world many times as a messenger of peace to the world. He said, "I want to be the one. I want to be the proclaimer." that the world has finally concluded a true and noble peace. I want to see ample food for everyone on earth who is hungry. I want to be the healer for everyone on earth who is ill and ailing. I want to be the smile on the face of everyone on earth. I want to be the eye for all the blind on earth. I want to be the friend to all the homeless on earth. I want to be the joy in the heart of everyone on earth. I want to be a home for every wanderer on the face of the earth. I want to be a song in the heart of everyone to sing. I want to extend my utmost gratitude to Mother Earth for providing us with food and sustenance of life. I want to be the lantern beacon that brings light and enlightenment to every human on earth. I want to be free like a bird to fly without fear throughout the heavens and the earth, and it is my fervent hope that all peoples and all nations on earth shall live as one nation, one people, in eternal peace. Now, this this amazing poem, uh, who is this himself saying this? Yes. Okay. And... Uh, was he uh, well known for his poetry? Was he a great writer in his life? <laughs> I don't think so. He 
he was a humanitarian activist for for peoples everywhere that he met. I don't think that he was given the, the full acknowledgement of what it was that he was saying and doing. I mentioned in the book that he went to different heads of state and said that he was sent there as a representative, and nobody sent him. <laughs> he, he, for instance, met with Ben-Gurion, and he, he was a repre- an ambassador of peace in his travels across the earth uh, without any formal uh, recognition or definition. It was his mission. It was his mission. And from the time that I met him, uh, he was the father of Sophie, my stepmother, um, he infused that knowledge or that vision into me, but it was already what was existing within me. So he was, after I received that scroll, he was the next person who really reflected to me this, this knowledge that was resonating within me, that, that was guiding me. That, that opening statement, I want to be the one, mm-hmm. is there anything at all self-serving about that or, or, or in any way uh, obsessive? No, uh, no. Ab- about I don't oneself. think how it meant. It wasn't in that sense, and he was not an egotistical person, but he wanted to be the singer of the song. He wanted to give his life, and did give his life, to the proclamation of this truth. That, you know, it's, it's very transcendent of our own individual existence. And this is the case, interestingly enough, the, the great teachers that I met in my life have deeply been the manifestation of these words. This has been kind of like what I have found in my journey. This type of attitude, this kind of, of life, which is dedicated, consecrated to the joy in everyone. You, the well-being of each being. You, um, at a very early age, uh, attended, attended Berkeley. And, and I noted at 16 years old, um, uh, you are, and you are obviously uh, moving along now with this scroll, with these amazing yes. words. Yes. Uh, what was it that, that occurred at Berkeley for you? How, how was your life uh, elevated at that stage? And, and, mm-hmm. and if there was any insulation at all, as, as I think many of us have when we're children, how was that manifested at that stage? Well, I mentioned in the book that I skipped the sixth grade and I skipped the twelfth grade. And there was a reason for it, which was I was living in more or less the 50s, America America in the 50s, suburban America. And I had kind of, I was like out of the box, I mentioned to you. In other words, the, the bird had already taken flight. So I was no longer more or less limited to that program um, that was manifested in, in the San Fernando Valley in the 50s, late 50s. And my orientation uh, was towards a more open, more spiritual, more dynamic uh, state of awareness. And in reality, every place that I went was then the manifestation of the state of consciousness I was ready to to. Uh, rise to. So when I came to Berkeley, that was in the early 60s, it was the time of the free speech movement, and there was a lot of spiritual activity, of, of collective seeking, of openness 
to all teachings. And um, so it was a very suitable place for me to be as I was going through my own process of preparing to make that journey uh, around the world. And I was there for several years. We had a theater company, and it was called the Floating Lotus Magic Opera Company. And um, it, we, it was our effort, again, I think you mentioned this in your notes, it was the formation of the circle again. Um, I think that this has been absolutely a recurrent theme in my life, that there's some awareness that we're all interconnected, and the circle is the image of, which contains all beings in unity. So what we used to do is that we would join in a circle with the people of our community and serve everyone, meditate. We, uh, we began by meditating, then we performed our plays, and then at the end we would serve everyone food. And this was a certain stage for us of um, a rite of worship, a kind of communal process uh, suitable to that environment. So when you, when you use, utilize this word box, uh, you're talking about, uh, as well, getting out of the box of the world, getting out of the materialistic sure. box, getting out of the Hollywood set, sure. getting out of that California uh, culture to, to, yeah. to, to be in God's world uh, rather than being in that materialistic world? Yes, that was, that's been the, that was the, the momentum that continued to guide me through all the different stages very beautifully stated by you. So it happened at this stage, and it would happen again and again. And t it continues to happen every day. Every day I make that journey out of this confining, uh, you know, concept, this confining um, realm of the world into the unlimited dimension of remembrance of God, praise of God, love of God, and then receptivity to the divine guidance, the divine knowledge. Now, before we move on to the journey itself, I wanted to note in your book uh, that obviously in those years at, at Berkeley, you uh, went through the... Um, uh, you went through the assassinations. Uh, you mm -hmm. you uh, witnessed uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, King's uh, amazing speeches and, mm -hmm. and his theories and his, his methodology and his approach to life. Mm -hmm. And I did notice that uh, 2008 did appear to be an important year for you because you had indicated that King's dream had come through. Um, we, we now have President Obama. Uh, but I had asked you this question in the notes. Uh, do, do you think that King would be terribly pleased with the way that it has gone for Obama, for President Obama at this stage? Because we are in a, a, a bit of a bind in this country, in this world mm -hmm. right now. How do you think that King would have viewed this? It is not my, you know, right to make that statement. Um, I have my own feelings. Reverend King had a mission that resonated very deeply with many of us. And what was wonderful about the election of Obama was simply that a person of African descent rose to the position of the presidency, indicating that every, everyone has the, has the possibility of achieving anything. That was the miraculous or the powerful sign that was manifesting through the election. 
what happened after the election seems to be very limited or com- contracted by political realities, uh, which are very different than the vision that we still hold to be true to in our hearts, which is for an ultimate victory for mankind, including all peoples, all races, all you know, sexes, ages, uh, nations, cultures, having one equal rights to a common vision for for healing of the human family, for um, you know the the transformation of the human intelligence and human existence to, into I would say the divine realm. And which is, you know, so much higher, as you said. It's not limited by the um, very aggressive, very oppressive forces that dominate uh, certainly the world of politics and uh, various uh, uh, tendencies in, uh, you know, human existence. But when a person comes along who, let's say, we can, the best example are the prophets themselves. The prophets. Peace and blessings be upon every one of them coming into completion in the Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings be upon him. Came to bring a complete message of both liberation and transformation to humanity that would be the end of, of oppression, uh, the oppression of falsehood, darkness, uh, and uh, racism, and so on. So those are the messages that were guiding me when I was young, and those are the messages that have guided me until this minute, continuing to guide me. And I believe that what Reverend King did was to be a spokesperson for that dream, that vision in, in his life. Now, I don't believe, I think when, when President Obama came on the scene, he used some of the rhetoric and, and kind of promised to to bring about that kind of change, and we don't see that that has occurred yet. At this stage, uh, you are now realizing the need for the the traveling aspect to travel around the world, to travel mm-hmm. to different continents, to to find um, or, or aspire to the goals um, mm-hmm. and the objectives. And you you do talk about uh, on on page forty seven um, when you're uh, high in the mountain regions of Nepal, one mm-hmm. of these uh, one of these places that you stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do mention that uh, one of the underlying motives for leaving America was to escape from modernity. I'm not saying that right. Modernity, with all, with with all its uh, superficiality and consumerism. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, now you're back in this country, uh, and you've witnessed so many amazing places. You come across so many uh, spiritually guided people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it after all these years to come back to a country that is, uh, has still not really evolved and still not gone? beyond that that idea of, of the greed that we see in society mm-hmm. today. I understand. First, I'm going to go back to the, the period of the journey that you're discussing, uh, that you're indicating right now. And that was at the end of our work in the theater in Berkeley. I went into a period of, of deep retreat. I spent almost all my time inside. And it was at that point that the scriptures came to life, and the divine presence started to 
fill my heart. And so my mission was starting to evolve, and it, was, it came about in solitude, that is, in the inner realms. And the whole rest of my journey continued to go deeper and deeper into that, into that space. That means I've spent a, a good amount of time in prayer and meditation inside, and then I've been guided. So I wanted to integrate that process of going inside and then being guided to go outside. And my journey has taken me from those inner realms into these encounters with amazing people who were deeply immersed in the love of God. And, and this is where you refer, of course, at the end of the book to uh, completing that full circle. Correct. And so I want to use that in our discussion as a reference point that I don't, my criteria is not to judge others or the world, and it's not to fix things politically. It's to find what God wants me to do and then uh, network, link up as God wills with other souls who are looking for that, searching for that, praying for that, people like yourself. And so, we cannot, although there's a lot of chaos in some dimensions of what's manifesting right now in the world, we, we cannot deny that. But this spirituality, this understanding, this light is, is nevertheless evolving in the hearts of the people who are ordained or guided, you know, deeply to find out the real meaning and find out the real solution to the problem. And I'd actually like to make that one of our last uh, points of discussion at the end. Mm -hmm. um, in order that we, we, we understand this journey, could we move on to the beginning of this journey and, and Afghanistan? Sure, uh, that, that is your, your first uh, destination. Mm -hmm. An amazing country um, that has had m many uh, politically based problems for so many years, probably mm -hmm. for hundreds of years, uh, yeah, and yeah. I think that you might agree that the problems that it has today are, are probably as immense as those problems uh, that, that it had back in the 20s when Winston Churchill tried to mm -hmm. um, uh, find out what, what Afghanistan was, was all about. And it, and it, be, it has become, in a way, one of world's battlegrounds. Um, yeah. You... You obviously uh, crossed Afghanistan uh, in the in the sixties, and mm -hmm. you saw a very different country to the way it is now. And yet, it's still a very barren country. It's still run by the these same uh, groups uh, or tribes. Um, what is it? What is it that you left where, from Afghanistan? What was the the greatest memories that you mm -hmm. had? Well, I did describe in the book the experience. Um, I was on a bus uh, with, and if anyone traveled in Afghanistan in those years, you know that they are very colorful. They are rattling with bells, and the people are dressed so beautifully, colorfully, and the atmosphere was very, very positive, very welcoming. I'm not saying that it was welcoming to everybody, including the people, some of the people within the culture itself, probably the majority of women were under duress even then and so on. Um, but um, for me, I felt that I was at home, 
and it is the place where Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, grew up as a child, I believe, and I was just mystically inclined, and I was feeling that. And so I was riding on the bus, and at a certain moment, the bus stopped, and all, absolutely all of the people uh, got out, and they put out their prayer mats in the desert and prayed. Uh, the call to prayer had come, the bus stopped, and everyone got out right in the desert and prayed. And this was my first view, my first vision of that form of prayer. And it was just utterly beautiful, you know, and peaceful. I, I mentioned that there was no political context at that moment. It was just a vision of peace, of people on a journey who stopped in the middle of anything, any place they were going. The priority was to worship their creator. And I myself just felt inclined to do the same and and did do the same. I, I interpreted in that at that part of the journey that actually that was the first time that, that you allude to the recognition of Islam. Would that be a correct assumption? That's right. It was the first, really literally the first time I saw people praying in that way. Now, I'd like to go to, before we, we move on, I'd like to go to uh, page 37 of your book. Um, and you are uh, quoting from the, the Quran uh, here, and I'm, I'm wondering what the cynics would say. I'm not taking a, 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 um, a, a position here at all. But um, you, you, you say here, for just as the Bible says, that thou shalt not kill, uh, so does the Holy Quran say. If you kill one person, it is as if you killed all of humanity. Um, I, I think what we should do and what I'd like to do here mm -hmm. is for the listeners' sake, actually for everybody's sake, is, is for you to just uh, support that statement um, mm -hmm. because obviously we have a world that looks at Islam and, uh, mm -hmm. and simply thinks that they, they are brutal uh, not only in their religion but in their actions. Can you talk to that for me, please? Yes, inshallah. First of all, I want to go to another passage of, uh, w that we have learned from our Lord, the Most Merciful. And that says that we have not sent Muhammad except as mercy for the worlds. Also, the Holy Quran begins, every surah of the Holy Quran begins, except for one, with the words, in the name of Allah, the Merciful, the Compassionate. So the Islam that I am speaking about, that I have experienced, uh, that I have lived for these more than 30 years, is based on that. It's the manifestation of that. It's the reality of that, mercy and love. Now, what we see, I'm going to give the example of what happened in Fort Hood. That activity, that manifestation, was the opposite of mercy. It was the opposite of what Allah, the Most Merciful, would intend. And yet, the person said, Allahu Akbar, and then did something that was against the law, utterly against the law of Islam, against the law of truth, against the law of love, against the reality of God's love. So, although people, my first point will be, although people do things in the name of any religion 
or in the name of God, when what they're doing is the, is the reversal or opposite of what God himself intends and wills and has manifested through, his, through the divine teachings, then they're not, they're not true Muslims or they're not true Christians, they're not you know, true believers in the one of infinite love, grace, and mercy. So, and so what, I, what I have learned, the people that I was guided to, if I had been guided to people like that, I would never have become a Muslim. So we, we should be, make very clear here that, that as with any religion in the world, there are factions that, that uh, uh, work and live contrary to the actual beliefs uh, as set out um, in the Bible, in the scriptures. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and is that not such a confusion in our world that, that people uh, look at the events of September the 11th, 2001 and, and make uh, such um, bland uh, yes, and, 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 and come to some, uh, such assumptions that, that essentially says that any religion under that name uh, mm-hmm. should be um, uh, ignored uh, mm-hmm. because they obviously are uh, of all the same um, type of mentality, and I and I think that's what I was trying to to find your position on, and mm-hmm. trying to to satisfy that for the listeners. Well, it's a wonderful thing that we have programs like this, and I myself am committed to sharing, to exploring these issues in any in any uh, context, because there's been a great deal of misinformation and almost a conspiracy between media representation of Islam in in such a negative way, and it's based upon various extreme people, we call them extremists, who are acting in the name of Islam in total opposition to what Islam has already uh, ordained. And I'll give you the example that in that war, uh, I mean, any kind of activity, I don't want to call it war, but the only way that we can act um, is in self-defense. But in the course, this is how in, in the context of when Islam grew, it, in the very beginning, the, the Muslims, having received the revelation of God upon them, the small group of Muslims, were being so battered and abused and oppressed that finally a revelation came which says, yes, you can defend yourself, but there are very, very specific rules uh, that are based upon justice and mercy that must be applied. And one of those rules is that no innocents should be killed. Innocent women and children may not be killed. You see someone blowing up, a, you know, and you may not commit suicide. These are against the rules of Islam. So when you see uh, daily on the news that here we see a suicide bombing, here we see innocent people killed, we know that this is part of a conspiracy to cover up the reality and the light of Islam, the truth that is inherent in that the mercy of God. Now, in continuing your journey, uh, you reach India, 
Um, and of course, you you refer to this some kind of death, and obviously it was a horrendous food poisoning. And and this is only something to touch on briefly as we we move quickly forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you you meet a young man who accompanies you for a short while, and and doesn't it say something that in your worst time when you were uh, reeled up into a ball with this food poisoning, uh, feeling very close to death, that this young man decided to move on and abandon you um, on, on his continuing journey. Uh, is that a memory that stays with you? No. It's not important at all, but I'll clarify it a little bit. It was just a passing person. That happened to, uh, I happened to meet at a border, and we happened to make a small uh, a trip to a hotel together. That's it. No contact, really, between us. And the most important thing was that I was alone. And it wasn't overwhelmingly miserable at all. It was difficult. It was challenging. It's, I said to you that I, I mean, I wrote in the book, it said, I, had, I looked in the sky when I was sitting in the border, and it said, full moon in the house of death. I was uh, following a certain mystical book that I had been reading, and I, that was the period where I felt that I was. And then I had, was at this hotel, and there was a person uh, who worked there who seemed to kind of think I was the Divine Mother or something and started bringing out dishes and dishes and dishes of food, setting them all out in front of me. And I felt that I had to eat them, and I became ill, uh, which can happen. That's normal. And I went into the room, and I became, uh, just as you said, I mean, it, it was a kind of death, let's say, a purification more than that. And when I was alone, I felt that it was more suitable for me to be so. I I really didn't know that person. He was overwhelmed by what was going on. It was fine that he went on his journey, really. And I continued to be alone for the rest of my, for an extended period of time, uh, where I basically didn't even speak to anyone. That was the reality of my journey. That was what I had to do in order to access the deeper levels of knowledge and to learn about God who was with me no matter what. So that that old saying of oh, maybe it's a saying that I came up with one of, with one of my old films back in two thousand four is those who who struggle are those who really live. Yeah, um, poss- possibly that is very true. I'm moving on to uh, referring to uh, your search for Mahaji Ji, and uh, I wonder if you could just very briefly for our listeners just define uh, what a guru is, because uh, obviously you were. You you are defining one particular guru that you're essentially looking for, but there are many gurus. And now, what are they essentially? What are they representing? Well, the word guru means teacher, basically. And the reason that I include this in the book is because at that very moment, for a certain period of time, I needed to learn something from uh, a person in that realm there. Um, And so Maharaji was the guru of Ramdas, Baba Ramdas, and in that particular phase in you, in our in the 60s and so on, Ramdas had a message to deliver, and he wrote a book uh, called Be Here Now, and I happened to have intermittent contact with him, and that um, he used to deliver speeches, and the words that he read in the speech, the, the scriptures that he quoted, I had already written them down in my journal, the same words, which made me feel that I should in the course of my journey, go uh, to look for that, to, for his teacher. And I think that we should just, because my, my real path is not 
um, limited to that, and there's more to be said after that. I will just say that there was definitely a reason I had to make the journey through the hills of India, and once again, it was a trial, and uh, but a very happy one. <laughs> I'm not complaining about anything. And I finally, after many months of standing up on trains, barely sleeping, but trying to find this person, I went to Nepal, I came back, and I finally, I finally met him. And he seemed to know everything that had happened to me and was very kind and loving. Um, and, but after a few days, he said, now you have to continue your journey. And he specifically told me that I should walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Peace and blessings be upon him. And that was true. <laughs> and so that leads us into the next stages of the journey. And I would say it was in the line of the prophets that I needed to travel. So we talk about, on page 46, we talk about, uh, in reference to that, to the master and to the goal. Now, you've you've talked about the master what are you finding now at this stage that that goal is mm -hmm. well the goal is as a human being a creature of the one most merciful most loving most wise to be totally submitted to that to those qualities to that essence to to be in harmony and to be found pleasing by the one who created us, that my life, our life, would be have achieved the purpose for which we were created. And what Allah tells us in the Quran is that he did not create us except to worship him, to love him. So I would say that the goal is to become um, totally surrendered to that bounteous ocean, to be to become uh, merged in the sense of giving ourselves as s servants to that vast ocean of reality. So clearly, at this stage, you are very much finding out about yourself, about that goal, meeting all these amazing people, taking this journey. Mm -hmm. You reach Kathmandu. Um, one of the, what I believe is uh, one of the most astounding parts of your book is the burning of the body that you see across the river that clearly was at the time very disturbing, very upsetting. And, of course, you went back there many years later. I'm, I'm interested, and, of course, you do state very clearly in your book that uh, Islam in, in your religion would certainly not... Uh, deal with a burial in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm most interested in the return back there so many years. What, what you thought about that time? How, does that, how did that impact you? You see, in the beginning of my journey, I did not know where I was going. And I was just led through these amazing experiences. At, you know, and I tried to portray it in the book as it was, as it appeared. So I had mentioned earlier that I was looking for a campfire where I, because I saw all the gurus sitting with their disciples around campfires, I said, well, where is my place? Where, where is the campfire I should be sitting at so that I can learn what I need to learn from my teacher that is ordained for me? And 
while I was sitting, I was sitting at a, you know, in a, by a temple in Kathmandu, and I saw a fire on the other side of the river, and I was just, you know, I was meditating, and then I, I noticed the fire was burning. I looked um, more and more at it until I realized that a body was burned, burning there. And in fact, that those are the burning ghats that are connected to um, the hospice where people die. And then, according to that tradition, uh, the, the thing to do is to cremate the people. And a lot of people in this time also do that. Uh, my, the teachings of Islam do not support that. And I have learned or been taught that the, the, body, the person is suffering. The person who has died is suffering in that fire. And fire itself is not a good image for a person as they're leaving this world because we want to go to the garden, not the fire. And so there are very beautiful, very pure practices. I say they're pure because to, to me they appear to be sound and sane and respectful to both the person passing and the people surrounding that. Uh, very prayerful and very clean and clear. And those uh, practices are how, you know, when a body, after a person dies, they need to be washed in an appropriate way. We need to know that they're aware, they're conscious of the people around them. We need to pray uh, very, very much for them and pray, just pray that God's will be done and be gracious and that their life be accepted. And they're wrapped in white cloth. And so this is um, part of Islam that convinced me about its divine uh, origin and that it is a beautiful way of living. And it, it made me feel that it is appropriate to do this to people after when their time has come uh, to leave this world. Now, in And so when I came back, I was a Muslim, and those were the thoughts that was the, I was very grateful to the one most merciful for having clarified that for me. Now, as we approach the, the end of this first of two programs, I would like to just finish up uh, today on your time uh, at the place of Abraham, where you talked to the embracing of Islam. Mm -hmm. um, what was that period now um, affecting you? What way were you affecting uh, your own mind, your spirit? Uh, clearly, at this time, you had decided that Islam was your road, was your life, uh, mm -hmm. was going to be your commitment. Um, in these last couple of minutes, what was that mm -hmm. period going to, to do for you? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened was not by my choice, and I didn't read about it in a book, but it had a quality of being revelatory, of being inspired. I was guided to it. And so every phase of the journey will, will show that element. It, you, if, you if you look, and I know you studied this book, and I thank you for reading it so deeply, but each particular uh, phase was guiding me closer and closer to this understanding, to this experience of the divine. I embraced Islam because I was in God's presence, and he you know, manifested his glory to me in such a way that I bowed down. You know, I prostrated. I had no choice. The presence of God 
inspired me to bow down. And this occurred in the uh, mosque, which is also a synagogue, of Abraham, our, our father, the patriarch Abraham, peace and blessings be upon him. And I was guided there because I went to Jerusalem to write a book on, uh, they called it A Garden in the Flames, and about the prophetic teachings that manifested in that, in that realm. And while I was waiting one day at Damascus Gate for my mother superior, who I had met in Europe and had reunited with in the Holy Land, someone came to me. I was in a state of meditation and asked me, are you not Mary from California? And I said, yes, I am Mary. I'm from California. He said, my grandfather is waiting for you. And this was the key. This is, and it happened that the person he mentioned, uh, Sheikh Abdul Muttalib, was my first Sheikh, and in fact he was waiting for me in a zawiya, a place of prayer, about uh, five or ten minutes away from the tomb of the Prophet Abraham. And so that's where all of this mystery started to unfold and become very clear to me. I think what we'll do is we will stop there and I'd like to continue from that part of the story um, in the next program, in the second of our two programs, and uh, that would um, act as a wonderful segue into the building of the mosque in New Mexico in 1975. Mm -hmm. So, meanwhile, um, I'd like to thank you for joining me, joining our listeners on the program today in this first of two programs. We'll look forward to... Uh, talking to you again for the for the second and the final program that completes your wonderful journey. Maryam Kabir Faye, thank you very much for joining us today. And I thank you so much for, for hosting this beautiful Assembly of Souls, and I feel honored and blessed to be a part of it. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. Uh, do join us again. We will be um, taking this journey into a second program uh, very shortly, and that will be uh, the information of that will be on the official website davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, God bless you, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.